0: Episode of Gladiator for Europe. I am your host Liam, joined here today by Abram and Russian Sam.
1: What's up? Hello, hello. And
0: today we have a very special episode. We dug up something deep in the archives. I hope all you guys out there are, you know, enjoying your summers. Maybe sitting by the beach with a nice little page turner. The three of us recently found a uh, a pretty fun book that we wanted to share with all of you guys.
1: A classic pulp novel.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. A classic right up there with, like, you know, the works of Ian Fleming. Uh, A fun thriller, you know, along the lines of Graham Greene or Raymond Carver that we think a lot of you guys, the audience, would find interesting.
2: For the record, I do not recommend digging this book up. You absolutely do not want to read this. You will not have a good time.
0: (laughs) Yeah, okay, well, well, Sam here is the detractor. But, But this book is really something to behold. The book we read this week is The Coven, forgotten political thriller with supernatural elements by a writer known as David St. John. Nobody has heard of David St. John really before or since. He wrote a handful of books with that name in the 70s. None of them made any kind of a splash at all. But pretty soon after these books came out, it was discovered that David St. John didn't exist. Instead, this was a pseudonym for a character so much more colorful than anything the author's limited imagination could come up with. Turns out the real identity of David St. John was former CIA man E. Howard Hunt, one of the most notorious G-men in American history. On the side for more than 50 years, this guy, when not planning coups or illegally surveilling his own citizens, was writing the worst, the most contrived, and the horniest crime novels you could imagine. So, to tell, me, both you guys, uh, what are your thoughts on, on this book and just the idea of E. Howard Hunt as a pulp novelist?
2: Okay, leaving aside his political activity, I think Hunt should have been sentenced to death. <laughs> For his prose alone. Like, is this very trashy style where, at the same time, he has pretensions to, like, literary greatness. Like, he just... Uh, has untranslated passages in French in there, acting as if, like, he's Mr. Worldwide. Yeah,
0: Tolstoy or something. And, uh, you have any, any thoughts, Abram?
1: This guy sort of reminds me, early on in Mad Men, I think in the first season, the character Ken Cosgrove writes a short story that's, like, actually good and gets published, and the jealous, vindictive character Pete Campbell sees this and wants to write his own novel. You know, Pete Campbell is not a creative writer. He is not a good writer. He just sees other people's success and thinks he has the ability to become successful in that field. You know,
2: I mean, when he was first starting out, uh, his first uh, novel came out in 1942, I believe it was. It was basically the first novel written by an American who had served in the war about the war. And it, it was modestly well received. And I, and presumably that just glit something in him that he just had to keep writing. He just wanted to be the next great American writer. Uh, but instead, he just became a run of the mill pulp fiction writer who just thought that uh, he could do it better than Alexander Fleming, so he should get equivalent levels of fame.
1: Was that first book? Written under a pen name, or is that under his real name? Uh, no, no,
2: it was under his own name. He would write uh, books under his own name until 1949, when he actually joined the CIA.
0: And then again at the end of his life, uh, in the 90s and 2000s, before he died, he wrote a few more books uh, with his real name.
2: He wasn't doing much writing in uh, in his final days. Like right before his death, they released uh, a book. An American Spy, which was ostensibly written with the co-author, but the co-author was just, like, the ghostwriter, because by that point, like, he was sick with everything. He had, like, cancer, he had pneumonia. He, he just wasn't in a state to actually be writing, so they just, like, handed it off to this guy who was just tired to do the job. And, I mean, I read some of it. It's okay, it's it's readable, but you can tell that, like, his heart wasn't really in it.
0: Well, yeah, so let's, uh, let's talk about it. Everett Howard Hunt, the man himself. Uh, who exactly was this guy?
2: As you said at the top of the episode, he was one of the G-men. He really made a name for himself in uh, Guatemala in particular, where he played a very active role in the propaganda operations against uh, Colonel Arbenz, who was the leader of Guatemala at the time.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and before that, if you want to even think, go a little bit farther back in his life... He has a, a kind of interesting, or maybe, maybe a, an interestingly disinteresting upbringing. Because like so many other people involved in American politics in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, he came from this northeast, upper, uh, upstate New York kind of background. Quite privileged, you know, he went to private school, ultimately went into the Ivies. But what I think is interesting about him, which uh, I think you see a lot among right-wingers in this area is he was never as close to those elite social circles as he wanted to be. And this reminds me of the uh, the Pete Campbell comparison, Abram.
1: And comparison to somebody else that will be... uh... Very,
0: yes, yes, we'll mention him soon. Uh, Another thing to mention here, uh, I couldn't find confirmation of this, but some people might have suggested that uh, the Hunt family was Catholic. It seems like it's not totally known for sure what his religious affiliation was. But if he was Catholic, he was uh, very much a Catholic in the uh, William F. Buckley style. But, you know, like a a Catholic wasp, basically. And we should mention that Buckley ended up being a personal friend of E. Howard Hunt as he got older.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, first Buckley went over to Mexico City to work for Hunt in some unspecified role. He claimed it was to translate something. But I mean, eh, I don't know. But yeah, they would remain uh, lifelong friends after this. They had similar crank complaints about uh, liberal elitism, well, elite liberalism, rather. Well,
0: we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves here. Uh, How, Sam, how did E. Howard Hunt, this, you know, kid from upstate New York, get involved in American politics to begin with?
2: All right. Uh, yeah. So uh, he was a fancy boy. Uh, he went to Brown, uh, graduated in 1940 with a degree in, in English.
0: Right. I think, I think it's important that he, uh, he, gradu- he uh, graduated from Brown rather than Princeton or Yale or Harvard. I think that kind of says something here.
2: Yeah, like, clearly, like, connected, but not super connected. Yeah, exactly. He joined the Naval Academy, and, uh, and he claims that uh, some of the people he trained with died at Pearl Harbor. Maybe it's possible, but yeah, so he was in the Navy, uh, got a medical discharge in 1942, allegedly for slipping. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's awesome, man. He skipped all of World War II because he slipped.
1: The first World War II book, the first first person account World War II book ends with him slipping and then getting discharged. Is that is that what's (laughs) going to happen? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So as I mentioned, he got a medical discharge at that point, like he just uh, sort of wandered around. It seems like he did some propaganda work for the Navy uh, in film. He briefly worked as a journalist, but he did have some kind of a knack for uh, writing clearly because he just kept pumping them out. And at first they were well-regarded, but with time, much less so.
0: Yeah. Well, one thing I also think during this era we're talking about here, he also, uh, he spent a little bit of time in Orlando, which I just want to mention because like, this was like Orlando in 1949 before Disneyland. Absolutely nobody was in Orlando. So, uh, because he was stationed there for an Air Force posting, I have to think he probably was just, you know, bored out of his mind in this orange grove town and just, you know, got to writing.
2: Yeah, so bored in fact that he joined the OSS at this point. He was just lounging around and uh, thinking, you know, I'm not doing much. I mean, I'm writing my novels, but I could be doing so much more. And through, uh, through his father, who knew Wild Bill Donovan, who was picked up by an FDR to run the OSS, which is the precursor to the CIA. He just didn't really trust anyone else, so he wanted his own guy at the post. But as it turned out, uh, his father was uh, acquainted with Donovan, so he was able to uh, smooch right up to the man himself who uh, had a proclivity for uh, getting very drunk and screaming, (laughs) yee-haw. All right, uh, I dig it.
0: it. I don't think he was really good at anything. He was not good at being a spy. He was not good at writing books. He apparently was not good at being a soldier if, you know, he uh, slipped and fell and got a discharge after a year. But I think that the one closest thing to a talent he had was making friends with people more powerful than him so that whenever he screwed up, he'd, if not fail upward, at least be able to fail sideways and get a job doing
2: something else somewhere else. Yeah, this guy basically had tenure. Yeah, (laughs) that's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, once you're in these positions for a while, there's like an expectation that you're going to get a promotion. And he's one of those people that's like, not bad, you know, not somebody you want to get rid of, but he's just not good enough to like be given any more responsibility. So kind of like moves around places rather than like going up the ranks in the places that he was employed at
2: yeah yeah so world war ii ends uh he's done with china goes back to america he uh somehow manages to land a guggenheim fellowship in 1946 which is a very prestigious uh, literary prize in fact uh gore vidal was really mad that like this guy got one before he did <laughs> and i mean <laughs> it's funny i understand like having read some gore vidal and having read this guy i understand i'm, I'm baffled as well So he got his Guggenheim help Fellowship, and he decided to go down to Mexico to improve his Spanish while he's also writing his novels. And he just kept pumping them out year after year. They sold fairly well. Uh, He was getting, like, 150,000 sales per copy. That's pretty good. Damn. Yeah, in fact, uh, he he was doing so well that uh, his 1949 book, Bimini Run, uh, was bought by Warner Brothers, who wanted to make a movie out of it. Although nothing really came of it, but... He was paid $35,000 for the rights to it, which was a lot of money back then, especially for just like like a basic proposal for a novel that wasn't even really well received.
1: It's funny that he got $35,000 from Warner Brothers because the last thing I heard about Warner Brothers giving people money for like um ideas is when they did that Annabelle creation movie where they had like a contest for you to pitch a movie and the prize was $50 just to like buy the idea and another $50 if we decide to make it. So $100 total if Warner Brothers makes your movie. $100 in, you know, 2018 money versus $35,000 like 1950s money.
0: <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. it says a lot about America, doesn't it? We were once so great for, 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 uh, for fail-son wasp writers. Uh, pretty soon after this, the writing career of E. Howard Hunt would essentially come to an end. However, the writing career of David St. John would only just get started because once E. Howard Hunt started his new job, he would no longer publish books under his own name. And that's because
2: what was his new job? It was working for the CIA. He had uh, joined the agency in 1947 or 48 because, you know, the uh, the OSS had outlived its usefulness and it was time to get some new guys to get some new titles. And he he was everywhere. He was a, a genuine globetrotter in the 40s and 50s. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. So in 1948, they sent him over to Paris, um, ostensibly to administer Marshall Plan aid. In reality, uh, he was at the CIA Paris station. Kind of hard to tell what was going on over there. Uh, but clearly, he was up to some of his political shenanigans, which you would get a knack for later on in his career, as well as... Uh, sleeping around, eating fine wine, and writing more novels.
0: Right, yeah. And I think what's also interesting here is that it was during his time in Europe, at the start of the lifetime of the CIA, that he really started to clash with other people in the growing nascent intelligence community. Because E. Howard Hunt was actually exceptionally right-wing for this milieu, which in the late 40s, early 50s, had somewhat of a more international liberal bent than government institutions tend to do today. This would become a huge rallying cry for groups like the Birchers, who we talked about before, you know, that would emerge pretty soon after. And in E. Howard Hunt's life, it meant that he was convinced that he was a hardworking American and that these liberal elites, essentially, in the higher positions of the CIA, were really hardly better than communists. And so it was this time in Europe that seems to have really Sharpened the blade of his grudge against his, you know, social betters who went, who didn't go to Brown, the guys who went to Princeton and Yale, and I think this is, you know, pretty interesting.
2: And once again, another parallel to a figure who will feature prominently in this story.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. So yeah. Yes. And so so who's so Abram, uh, explain this. So let's let's get to cut to the chase. What what is this parallel we're talking about?
1: Yeah. So you know, Hunt worked for Nixon eventually, and he has like. Very interesting similarities to Nixon. In the same way that, you know, Hunt went to these sort of prestigious schools, you know, he worked in these institutions, you know, with all these other guys, but he never quite fit in. And he was always like, you know, sort of socially outcast. And that's part of why the reason why he never succeeded, you know, in becoming like a very big guy in the CIA or. But it's very similar to Nixon because, you know, obviously the story is Nixon, he hated the Harvard guys. And he hated the Harvard guys because he got into Harvard, but he didn't have the money to travel to Harvard. So he went to college in California, just like stay close to home. With your college. Yeah. And then, you know, later on, he would be elected to Congress. And then, you know, he would be a vice president. But in that time in Congress, he never really made friends with the people in DC. He was actually good friends with JFK in the very beginning. but Oh, that's funny. I know that. Then they ran against each other. And, you know, that friendship kind of like... Sailed by. But, but yeah, he, again, he was same deal. He was always a little too right wing or just a little too much of a nerd, really. Like, if we're being honest, like a little too much of a a buzzkill to like be in like the Georgetown parties.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if you two guys have read uh, Nixonland by Rick Perlstein, which is, you know, a favorite book of mine that I just reread uh, a couple months ago. But a really big point in that book is this distinction that apparently existed in. Nixon's mind, going back to his days at Whittier, between the, you know, well-heeled erudite and possibly even soft on communism Franklins, versus people like himself, who were the hardworking, less privileged, more right-wing Orthogonians, which is a an obscure Greek word meaning at right angles. And so according to Perlstein, Nixon basically divided the entire world between Franklins, who I think he would certainly include the Kennedys in that, and then people like him, the Orthogonians. And if he had ever taken the time to explain this to E. Howard Hunt, which maybe he did one day, you know, sitting in the uh, White House Rose Garden, then he would have explained that E. Howard Hunt also was an Orthogonian. And I think that a really interesting example of this in Nixon's career as a congressman, which really illustrates this whole thing quite well, is the famous story of Alger Hiss?
2: You guys know what happened there? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, State Department guy who had flirted with the Communist Party in his Harvard days, because that was the wave of the future. That's what elites did back in those days, right? And just to pause here, note in
0: his Harvard days, right? That's important. Not his Brown days. He was a more elite guy than either Nixon or Hunt.
1: You know, we say, oh, Brown is an Ivy League. It's like, Brown is an Ivy League in the minds of, like, people trying to make it big, you know, when they're still in high school. But in the act, once you actually get to the real social circles that, like, run the country, it is Harvard and Yale and Princeton. And not even Princeton so much. Like, up until recently, basically, every Supreme Court justice was Harvard and Yale.
2: Yeah, this is a very dated reference. But at one point, there was a family guy gag where... Where one of the guys is like, oh, yes, my retarded cousin went to Brown. (laughs) Yes. Thank you,
0: Seth MacFarlane, for explaining this much more simply than any of us could. Yeah. Uh, We just had to go back to Alger Hiss. Probably the most famous part of this story is that Alger Hiss eventually would be implicated in selling some kinds of uh, secret documents to the Soviet Union. And the way he would be found out about this... Thanks, in some part, to the efforts of Richard Nixon, who, as a congressman, was the biggest opponent of Alger Hiss and attacked him most strongly when a lot of other congressmen thought he might be innocent. The way they found these documents was because they had been stashed in a hollowed-out pumpkin on the uh, Alger family estate.
2: Yeah, I gotta say, that's a very clever hiding place. I'm going to have to uh, keep that one in mind. I-,
0: I would just say that, like, personally, if I was hiding documents, I don't think I would hide them in the one fruit that is most famous for being carved. Like, come on, of course you're going to check
2: the pumpkins first. So, like, when you get to a certain level of the upper classes, like like, essentially the problem for Nixon and Hunt and all these guys is that, like, they're not really commoners, so... So the people who they would have had the disdain for, like, the real fancy boys, like, those people wouldn't really be interacting with, like, Joe Schmo. So all of their, like, misgivings and snobbishness would be, like, directed towards these people who are, like, well-off enough to be in the club somewhat, but not well-off enough to have the same pedigree. Right, right,
0: yeah, yeah, and I think that we should mention that it was, yeah, and so, so, and it was during the mid fifties that, in a lot of ways, E. Howard Hunt would essentially be vindicated because the Red Scare would happen across the late forties, early mid fifties, where a lot of the guys that he saw as soft on communism would also be perceived as soft on communism by other elements of the State Department and the CIA, meaning that more explicitly right wing figures like him would essentially have either more authority or be given free reign to do whatever they wanted to squash what they perceived of as communism or communist sympathy across the world. And nowhere in the world in the 1950s would be hit harder by this new wave of violent anti-communism than Latin America. And because E. Howard Hunt spoke Spanish, he would spend most of the 50s doing a whole litany of terrible, really, crimes, really, all across that world region, starting in Mexico.
2: Yeah, so he was stationed down in Mexico, and again, he was uh, involved in labor stuff, I believe, because, again, because of the more leftward-gleaning internationalist angle of the CIA at this time, they were trying to promote a non-communist labor movement across the world. So uh, Hunt would have been responsible for things like that. And at one point, uh, there was supposed to be a meeting between uh, the president of the Philippines, who was, you know, not a communist by any stretch of the imagination, but he was for land reform and all those things, which uh, to people like Cunt would have sounded uh, really... Uh, communists. So this guy was supposed to meet with some Mexican labor leader who was uh, working with the U.S. Embassy. So I presume this not would also would not have been a communist by any stretch of the imagination. But Hunt uh, had this guy arrested right before he was supposed to have a meeting with the president of the Philippines. And he subsequently got chewed out for that because it could have caused a major international incident if uh, if the president of the Philippines had gotten swept up in this. It would have been really embarrassing. And it was at that point that uh Hunt really begins to get a reputation as like a fuck up. Yeah, right, right.
0: Uh but despite that, you know, he would he found ways to, you know, keep hanging on and getting these important positions. We don't really know why it was, you know, I don't know if he had, you know, compromise on somebody if he was just really good at making friends and staying friendly with people who were in a position to hire or promote him. But despite this kind of bumbling, he stayed in the CA for about 20 years and would go all across Latin America doing similar kinds of subversive covert activities, you know, to hunt down labor leaders and all that. Most of these probably would be 1954
2: in Guatemala. Yeah, that was the coup against Colonel Arbenz, uh, who was a military leader who was democratically elected. And he essentially screwed over the United Fruit Company because what they'd been doing is they had a bunch of land in Guatemala that wasn't really being used at all. But at the same time, they never wanted to pay taxes on it. So they massively undervalued all of that land so when Arbenz comes into office and he starts talking about land reform you know taking away the land that's not being used by these international companies and giving it to the peasants of Guatemala who at this point would have basically been stuck in serfdom like that's how terrible conditions were and and because of what the United Fruit had been doing cheating their taxes all this time It looked like the value of their land was much lower than it was. So when they were compensated what they said it was worth, they started to make a fuss about it over in Washington.
0: That's a great bit on, on Arbenz's part. Yeah, like seeing these guys cheating on their taxes and then, you know, taking them at their word for it.
2: Yeah. So, uh, so they concocted a Kukumani scheme where Arbenz was supposedly in league with the communists. Uh, they were supposedly ship shipping weapons over to Guatemala. You know how it goes. So they started, uh, supporting, uh, an army coup that only had something like 150 troops <laughs> actually involved. It was minuscule, but they did have access to jets, which they used to great effect to actually bomb the capital city of Guatemala to, demoralize the population and get people to surrender and it worked uh they they got Arbenz out of there and they replaced it they replaced the government of guatemala with a junta
0: which would completely roll back labor protections and pretty terribly uh oppress the people of guatemala for years
2: oh yeah 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 this would all culminate in a civil war that was still going on in, into the 80s the most famous episode of that was uh the the genocide of the mayan peoples of of the coast uh But that's getting way ahead of ourselves. Right. Well, listen, what matters here is the fact that
0: this was a cataclysmic event for the Guatemalan people. And it also involved, it didn't go super well for the CIA themselves, as far as I understand. But because they managed to pull it off, this would be the feather in E. Howard Hunt's cap for the rest of his career. He was seen as the one, you know, who saved Guatemala from becoming communist,
2: Yeah, and it wasn't the same kind of stuff where we get now where no one really wants to fess up for it. Like in those days, like even Dulles was bragging about what they had done in Guatemala a couple of years after. It was something that uh, was a chip on their shoulder. But Hunt himself wasn't happy with the outcome because uh, the guy he wanted to be installed as president didn't get it. So, you know, once again, the communists win, as they always do.
0: (laughs) Right. And so after that frustration, he ended up going to Uruguay which you know bizarrely in hindsight was seen as the most you know potentially communist leaning nation in Latin America and then suddenly 1959 the entire American foreign policy establishment is taken by surprise by what the Cuban revolution it's just you know what 50 miles off the coast of Florida you have what would soon become a communist country professing sympathy with the Soviet Union complete transformation of US foreign policy goals they begin firing on all fronts, trying to figure out what can we do about this Castro guy?
2: Yeah, and, and uh, that's uh, where Hunt had his perhaps grandest fuck up in terms of actual lives, if, if not in, in the American media. But uh, Bay of Pigs, you may have heard of it. You may have uh, listened to Blowback season two. <laughs>
0: Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great pod, yeah. Uh, mutuals with those guys, you should listen. Uh, so he would make all these friends in the Cuban American exile community. You know, again, he spoke fluent Spanish. He was probably you can imagine him, you know, hanging out, drinking rum, listening to salsa music, and he started realizing all these Cubans coming over, they hate Castro. It must be that everybody in Cuba hates Castro, right? And I'm sure he didn't ask why all the Cubans he knew happened to be wealthy and white. So he manages to start training this dissident army with the intention of invading Cuba. It starts in the Eisenhower years, continues into the Kennedy years. And then they tell President Kennedy, hey, man, we have this plan. We're invading Cuba. And I guess somewhat reluctantly, Kennedy signs off on it. And so in 1961, they are about to launch this invasion of Cuba, landing at the Bay of Pigs. They learn they're not going to have air support as they thought they might have, because uh, I think Kennedy realized that that might actually cause World War III, so let's pull back there, but they decided, screw it, we've got all these guys, they almost hate Castro over there, we can do it. They go to Cuba, and what happens?
2: And, uh, well, first of all, they weren't synchronized, so they were supposed to all land at the same time, basically, but they, they didn't get there at the time they were supposed to be there, any of them, so it was very easy to just pick them off one by one as they landed on the coast. And, uh, yeah, it was a massive disaster. It was the thing that uh, really made Kennedy a lot of enemies in the Cuban exile community, which um, might have come around to bite him in the back, allegedly.
0: (laughs) Maybe so, yeah, that's true. And uh, speaking of uh, biting him in the back, uh, he also would make an enemy of at least one guy in the CIA. Because E. Howard Hunt would blame Kennedy for the rest of his life for withdrawing air support and saying that it wasn't him who screwed up, it was Kennedy Uh before we move on Abram do you remember that thing like 2 years ago when all those Venezuelan guys and the gringos too tried to invade Venezuela on fishing boats
1: Yeah yeah, yeah. I remember that very clearly And so so I think in that case um Trump and um Bolton were fully on board
2: no, uh, Trump withdrew support because uh, Guaido's wife went to see him, and she wasn't wearing her wedding ring. So he just decided that this isn't a cause worth investing in.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm bringing this up because you know you're talking about the Warner Brothers, uh, pri- you know, Warner Brothers op- uh, purchasing prices going down from thirty-five thousand to a hundred dollars. Uh, Bay of Pigs, total failure, but at least they managed to get a couple thousand guys involved. That thing in Venezuela, they had 60 guys trying to take over a country that I'm pretty sure is geographically bigger than Cuba and absolutely a lot harder to control. You know, you hear a lot about filibustering these days. Usually it's more of the uh, Joe Manchin, Mitch McConnell kind, but I like how these guys brought back the classic 19th century William Walker style of filibustering.
2: Return, baby, return. And, and
0: shortly after this would happen, E. Howard Hunt would find his... Star slowly falling within the CIA, and that he'd no longer be given these kinds of big international projects. Instead, he was moved to a new desk in the CIA, which was the domestic desk. And that alone is basically a pretty big deal. Because as everyone probably knows, the CIA's charter is that it is meant to operate outside of the U.S. We already have the FBI and other groups, the NSA, to work inside the United States. So what, was, what he was doing here, moral judgments totally aside, was on paper illegal. But this would be what he'd be doing for basically the rest of his career, would be internal meddling. The same kinds of stuff that he did in Cuba or in Mexico or in Guatemala, now in the U.S. Just maybe he couldn't be as explicit about, you know, this kind of suppression.
2: Yeah, but nevertheless, uh, he became quite well-known by face, if not by name, because there's a very good chance that he was in Dallas on a very eventful day. Supposedly, some of the people that the Dallas police had picked up on that day, uh, tramps, so-called. One of the tramps in question looks stunningly like E. Howard Hunt, one of many suspicious figures that day, if so- certain sources are to be believed. Including Hunt himself, who basically didn't exactly fess up to having taken part in Kennedy's assassination, but basically sketched out the command structure to his son.
0: Yeah, it's it's a lot of ifs and maybes here, but they're certainly compelling, and there's a lot more ifs and maybes than you might expect.
2: Yeah, well, just uh, goes to show uh, Kennedy, he had a lot of enemies all over the place, both domestic and international. So there were just a bunch of different factions. Right, right. But but in any case, you know, pretty soon after the Kennedy assassination, E. Howard
0: Hunt would be given a new job, uh, no longer in the U.S., uh, but certainly involving domestic politics where he was actually sent out of the country after the Kennedy assassination and would spend the next several years in Spain, but for a pretty funny purpose. He was, he was on sabbatical trying to write America's answer to James Bond. Because now it's like, you know, the middle of the 60s. That was supposedly one of Kennedy's favorite movies, you know, which also is kind of uh, some interesting psychological stuff going on here. Everyone loves James Bond, but America doesn't have an Ian Fleming. So maybe they just wanted to get him out of the country for a while, but for whatever reason, the CIA started paying E. Howard Hunt to write America's version of the James Bond novels. And what I think is pretty funny is that uh, the name he chose for his like total ripoff of James Bond was Peter Ward.
2: I don't know. I mean, Ward doesn't sound very American to me. Honestly, it just sounds way too Anglo. You gotta spice it up a little bit. Well, you would like Peter Eagle Son be better for you. Oh, oh, absolutely. I think he would have had a lot more success with Peter and Eagle Son than with Ward. And, and, and yeah, and
0: you're probably right because the books were a total flop. Which I think this really more than the Bay of Pigs should be his, you know, biggest failure of his career. That he let the Brits have a complete monopoly over the cool spy character.
2: Yeah, and I mean. he 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 was far from alone. Uh, um, A lot of these CIA guys, as I was surprised to learn, tried to write novels as well, like under pen names for whatever reason. It was just uh, a much more literate society back in those days. So it was just something that you, that people of a certain educational background were expected to dabble in. And we should also mention, I think that I think we said he was an English major. And these days, you
0: don't get like future world leaders or, or future world destroyers, you know, taking English as their major. But that was very common back then. And like you said, a lot of these guys styled themselves as some kind of you know warrior poet. That's certainly
1: how e. Howard Hunt saw himself. So that didn't work out. So what happened to him? Did he stay living in Spain? Did he get a nice Spanish wife? Did he become Latino? What happened?
0: No, instead, he made the wrong choice. He could have had all that, but instead, he moves back to America. And by now, it's no longer 1964, it's 1968. Things have changed quite a bit, you know? it's not the country he thought it was going to be. The hair has gotten longer, the bell bottoms have gotten wider, and women's liberation is sweeping the country.
2: Oh, he absolutely appreciated that last one. Very prolific womanizer. That's... (laughs) Uh, Yes, yes, yeah, that's probably true.
0: What he did not appreciate as much was the fact that many young people, including the ones, you know, indulging in free love and all that, were part of radical movements that he was now surveilling. Movements that were a lot more powerful and probably more radical than what had existed in the early 60s when he left.
2: I'm At least on the surface, it definitely wasn't the stuff that he would have been running into as an undergraduate in like the 30s. This was the new left, very different aesthetic, much more threatening. The only, uh, I should think that the
0: only similarity he might recognize with the left of the 30s is that the same kind of, you know, Franklin type Ivy League kids were often involved.
2: Yeah, and uh, he clearly wasn't a fan of those guys, so uh, he just uh, got back into work. But uh, unfortunately, he was never able to quite regain the profile that he got, Uh, although he couldn't be outright fired.
1: So the thing about these guys is that, you know, once you get a hit, you can just ride that for the rest of your career forever. You know, he did Guatemala. So he's like set. That doesn't mean that he's going to ride it to the top and become the head of the CIA, But it does mean that his position within the CIA is basically secure. And that's why he was, like, sent to Spain. Because, you know, it's like, you can't fire this guy because, like, he did good work for the agency and you want to reward that. But also, he's kind of a fuck-up. He fucked up the Bay of Pigs, so you don't want to, like, give him any more. So you give him, like, a cushy job, you know, go to Spain, write your little novels, and, you know, be happy there. And, you know, for a while, I'm sure he was very happy, but eventually he came back to America. And um, I'm sure he was personally frustrated that, you know, he can't advance within the CIA. But, you know, as luck would have it, he would get a, a very important and pivotal position in the Nixon administration.
0: That's right. And again, so we, we really am this here. Nixon does seem like a similar character. And I have, to, we don't, I, I'm not sure how well they knew each other, but I, I do wonder if they saw at least some kind of, you know, kindred spirits in each other.
1: I think we should rewind a little bit. Just sort of explain how Hunt got to be in the Nixon White House. Cause, you know, he was a CIA guy, and now he is like a spy in the White House staff, you know, for Nixon. So just give a little backstory on that. So Nixon was. A bitter rival with Kissinger within the White House. Obviously, like Kissinger was a sort of a big deal, you know, in Washington, you know, and he had a lot of friends, a lot of people liked him. Nixon, not so much. Obviously, he was a big deal. He was the president of the United States, but he was not somebody who was allowed. In the parties, I mean, at this point, obviously not because he's the president, like the president doesn't go to fucking parties in Georgetown, but you know before that vice president congressman never allowed in those social circles, he was always excluded,
0: yeah, and you know listen they 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 called the capital Washington, but they may as well have called it Franklin,
1: yeah, exactly, exactly, so Nixon wasn't ever allowed in those parties, but Kissinger was, and you know Nixon would do these things, you know, like these Nixon had ideas, he was like. A good politician, you know, he did become president, obviously. So he had things like, "We're going to go to China," you know, Kissinger. You and I are going to go to China, and then Kissinger would like, you know, talk bad, like, "Absolutely not. There's absolutely no way we're going to go to China." And then, you know, eventually it happens. Kissinger and Nixon go to China. It's very successful, you know. Uh, open up negotiations with China. It's like a big deal this is like one of the things people still remember Nixon for
0: maybe the most important part of his presidency
1: yeah and then what does Kissinger do he goes to Georgetown to the parties hosted by people like Catherine Graham Catherine Graham was the woman who uh her family owned the Washington Post and she was like the um manager of the company at that time so you know she was like a big deal in Washington So Kissinger would go to those kinds of parties with those, like, liberal elites, and he'd say things like, oh, yeah, going to China was my idea. I had to, like, convince Nixon to do it.
2: Mm -hmm. And shit like that
1: (laughs) would eventually get back to Nixon, and Nixon fucking hated Kissinger because of shit like that. He would constantly do that. Whenever something good happens, Kissinger would go around and, like, take credit for it. So what Nixon does is... He gets tape recorders installed in the Oval Office under the pretext that, you know, once, you know, we are going to write our memoirs, we're going to have, like, taped evidence of, like, who came up with what and, you know, whose ideas were whose ideas and yada yada. But, you know, there's, like, a a little hitch up is uh, Nixon, you know, I I say he's a nerd. He's, like, a book nerd. He's not, like, a a tech nerd. So, like, uh, which button do I press? What does this knob do like how do i work this thing way above like Nixon's uh talents with technology he couldn't figure out the gizmos yeah <laughs> so what they do is they make the tape recorders voice activated so whenever just whenever just in the oval office whenever Kissinger comes by and we start talking these tape recorders would just like start recording and then we're going to have a complete record of literally everything that happens in the oval office right oh my god and then, you know, obviously, uh, what those tapes end up revealing about Nixon is uh, obviously... Oh my god, you're... Yeah, I know. That's an interesting story. I never knew that part. That That is, wow, and that, that that would be the best part of the Nixon story I've heard so far. He literally hung himself by his own petard. So, he does that. Another thing he does is that and Nixon has these guys, you know, like Kissinger and um, Holderman, who was Nixon's chief of staff and, like... Eilwerkman, who was like, um, Ehrlichman, just like an advisor to Nixon. They were, those three were basically his Berlin Wall. So, what happened is Nixon would drink. He wasn't like a big drunk. I think he just, he had like some kind of medication where it's like he just takes a shot of whiskey and then becomes like insanely drunk. So, he would like, late at night, he would like take he would take some whiskey and then he would just like say insane shit like, we're gonna bomb Damascus. And then, Holderman and you know Kissinger and they were like, we're not gonna fucking bomb Damascus and just we're just gonna let him sober up and then you know he'll completely forget about it in the morning, right? But you know, over time new people start coming into the White House. And new people like the plumbers. The plumbers being Howard Hunt and Gordon Liddy. And these were the guys that you know Nixon got because he needed um people to take care of like domestic affairs for him, essentially. And when these guys were, like, pitched to Nixon, they would say shit about, like, Howard Hunt. Oh, he's James Bond. He's a pro. He's going to take care of whatever you need. Obviously, Howard Hunt is not James Bond. He can't even write James Bond. Uh (laughs) He's just like a, you know, he's a guy who, you know, did some good work, but also did a lot of bad work. So, you know, he's like a mixed bag. But, you know, because he's a mixed bag, he can never advance further within the CIA. But you know, you can unload him on the White House.
0: Right, which, and yes, and what he does would be the, probably the most famous aspect of the entire Nixon presidency, even more famous, at least in America, than the China visit.
1: Basically, at a certain point, I and Holderman, you know, they have, like, they delegate to, like, um, junior people, and those junior people would like, delegate to the, um, the plumbers. So, like, one of those guys was, like, John Dean. So, instead of the Berlin Wall... I recommend Holderman, Kissinger, instead of, you know, his insane shit going to them and stopping, it would go to people like John Dean, who would then go to like the plumbers and say, you know, let's take care of this for um, the boss.
2: Yeah. And the first job they were ordered to do, I believe, was uh, to raid the psychiatrist's office of Daniel Ellsberg of the uh, Pentagon Papers, 1971, made a very big splash, uh, front of the New York Times. But anyway, they were supposed to break into the office of the, of Ellsberg's psychiatrist to, like, dig up dirt on him and paint him as a loon, basically. So, they did that, uh, they weren't caught for that one, but at a certain point, they just kept getting hired for bigger and bigger jobs. And at some point, someone, not Nixon himself, mind you, Someone basically tells them to break into the Watergate hotel and to <laughs> bug it to I- I'm not even sure what to do what frankly, because Nixon was insanely popular, his approvals were through the roof, and there was no doubt that he
1: was going to win that election uh I
0: wouldn't say no doubt i, I wouldn't i wouldn't go that far, but yeah, he was definitely he he was leading no
1: it- doubt for a reasonable person, plenty of doubt for a person like nixon
0: uh that and that's it right there. you've got it, yeah. Especially with these, you know, commie-sympathizing Franklins running the Democratic Party
2: now. Yeah, yeah, but again, Nixon didn't order it. Someone lower down on the food chain suggested that they do this. He, well, what he did was he, he created these
0: people who would be... He gave people these positions of authority where they and the encouragement to do these kinds of illegal things. He let them work out what the details would be. And the details, please tell us.
1: Yeah, I mean, he would say things like, Dig up dirt on Ellsberg. And then, you know, the fact that they did something illegal, I mean, it might have not been something like that Nixon was personally aware that that's what's going to happen. You know, he just says what he needs, and then, you know, they figure it out. Another thing is that for a lot of early Nixon staffers, they knew him before he was President Nixon. So they knew, like, Vice President Nixon or, like, Candidate Nixon or, like, Congressman Nixon, they knew him well, and they knew, like, when to listen to him and when not to listen to him. But these newer guys coming in, you know, like Howard Hunt or John Dean or Gordon Liddy, they knew him as the president of the United States of America. You know, they're not going to treat him as like just some crazy drunk. They're going to treat him with the respect like somebody in that position deserves. And they're going to do what he tells them to do, even though they really should, you know, push back on it or just, or just like forget about it, honestly, you know?
2: Yeah, yeah, but Nixon's big mistake was after this had happened. It wasn't that he had ordered this, but rather that he refused to do anything about it because he was in general a very non-confrontational guy. (laughs) He just didn't like doing any of that stuff. So, so the idea of coming out and saying that these guys, they, you know, they did this. It, it would have made him look bad, period. So instead, they just went into full denial mode, at which point uh, the whole thing really spun out of control.
1: Yeah, again, I'll remind you JFK hung Edward Hunt out to dry. Nixon just went all in and just let him do what he needed to do. JFK survived uh, the Bay of Pigs scandal. Nixon did not survive the Watergate scandal.
2: Right. And Hunt himself would survive too, although he did get sent to jail. Ultimately, he just jumped ship because he saw which way the wind was blowing. But although he just uh, got away with the slap on the wrist, just a few years in prison, his wife actually ended up dying in really mysterious circumstances at this time. Right.
0: Very weird. Yeah, again, talking about all these ifs and maybes. This is one of the weirdest stories of the whole, I would say, you know, Watergate saga, or even Yawarton's life. What exactly was she doing? And how did she die when she died?
2: Yeah, so his wife, uh, Dorothy, uh, she was also seemingly affiliated with the CIA, although there isn't really hard evidence for that. But um, in any event, she was sent off to Chicago with $10,000 $10,000 in cash and some kind of documentation. Uh, presumably, this was Hunt trying to pay someone for some kind of favor to get him off the hook. But the plane that she was on, it, it crashes. It never reaches its destination. So Dorothy Hunt, as well as the other 40-something passengers on the plane, died that day. Um, Officially, it was a pilot malfunction. Some guy wasn't doing what he was supposed to. But I mean, like the entire point of all of these um, operations isn't to, without a shadow of a doubt, say that something didn't happen. It's to create enough reasonable doubt that... It's to create a story
1: that will run at the newspapers. Mm-hmm.
2: And I think that that might be more than anything
0: else. Yeah. Well, it's if you look at like, you know, this podcast, Gladio for Europe, if you look at the, the Gladio program in Italy, most famously... The idea was really just to use violence to sow chaos rather than to promote any kind of particular political message. Because if your intention is more control by various American government agencies uh, over governments foreign and domestic, then more chaos can allow groups like the CIA or NATO or local governments in Italy, for instance, uh, to enforce their authority and crack down on potentially troublesome parts of domestic politics. But that is enough about E. Howard Hunt as a spook, as a G-Man, because this episode is not so much about his career in government. Instead, it is about his side career. We are going to focus on E. Howard Hunt as a novelist.
2: And one novel in particular, they're over 80, you know, so uh, if this tickles your fancy after you've listened to it, there's a whole universe for you to explore. Many of them available on archive.org. Right, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so, so this book, uh, which we tried our best to
0: get through, it's it's pretty tricky, uh, given the really how awful some of the prose is, and we are about to show you how awful. It is a spy thriller, essentially, about this high-powered, super cool, jazz-loving DC lawyer who gets involved in a murder mystery about a young singer who seems to have occult ties. We have a lot of these uh, of passage of this book sampled here, so I think we can probably just dive into it. Let's set the mood, Abram. Would you like to lead us off with the very first wonderful paragraph of his
1: 1972 book, "The Coven?" Certainly. The sound of my door closing on the day's last client was no louder than a detonating grenade. When the echoes died away, I stretched and massaged my neck muscles stiff from staying over long in one position. The time was a little over six, and my secretary had been gone an hour, leaving me alone with Mr. Rolf Johansson, who droned on about alleged whiplash injuries suffered from a collision seven months ago. It was a lousy case, on the face of it. Sorry, Mr. Johansson, but I don't handle contingency suits. His eyes unlidded like a startled toad. Huh? You're Jonathan P. Galt, ain't you? The fellow who was district attorney here? Not exactly. Here in Washington, the title is United States Attorney, and I was an assistant.
2: Wow! Real riveting stuff. Right. So, so the, the yes. Yeah, so it, it's hilarious.
0: Yeah. He 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 really imagines this like kind of film noir character who's this you know former assistant U.S. attorney. Uh, the guy's name we have to mention if you didn't hear it, Jonathan Galt. Classic awful dork shit. It's yeah. It, the, the whole character's name is an allusion to. Uh, the works of ayn rand the character of jonathan galt he's this you know well-heeled highfalutin lawyer who everybody in town thinks is really cool pretty soon after this happens he meets up with his girlfriend who we find out is actually engaged to some wealthy man but you know john galt is so hot she can't stay away he's a big jazz fan which is very funny that kind of character and whenever he goes to jazz clubs all of the Older black musicians go up to him and say, oh, hey, it's my friend, John Galt. You're so cool. What year did he write this book? 72. Yeah. So this was this was when when jazz was safe, but funk was coming up.
1: Yeah. This is such a throwback. This feels like a 52 book. Yeah. Because like I'm just reading it like I can kind of picture in my mind what he's going for. And he's going for like a black and white 50s like noir camera above um, the spinning fan, you know, just light illuminated through the blinds, that sort of thing. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Yes, exactly. And it reminds you also, it kind of harkens back to the kind of art that was cool and transgressive in the 30s and 40s, but no longer in the 60s and 70s. And I think I think the, the fact that the character is really into jazz is interesting, because now in the 60s and 70s, This was right when jazz, which had previously been quite edgy and associated almost entirely with black artists, had lost that shine. And now newer, edgier music like funk, you know, was coming up.
1: And one thing, another thing is like the John Gold name. Is that supposed to be subtle? Only the true fans are going to get this reference.
2: (laughs) Uh Well, to be fair, he spelled G-A-U-L-T. So who's to say? Yeah, he, he thought he was being clever, yeah. He was clearly at the leading edge of the culture. He was uh, saying stuff that uh, really riled up those glibs, you know? And he felt that he was uh, doing great, a great service with his witty remarks about, uh, you know, these, uh, these darn kids and their urban settings. So,
1: yeah, here's one. Georgetown, I'm used. Once the fashionable quarter for the colonial residences of slaveholders and plantation owners. Then, for decades, a slum. Until the New Deal, it became a low-rent magnet for Roosevelt bright young lawyers who grew affluent and rebuilt and remodeled it into the highest-priced real estate south of Park Avenue. Now, in the phrase of a famous urban planner, Georgetown had become a zone of permissiveness, or in the words of a resident, the tagline of the dirty joke that was the district. The cycle was complete and the downgrade was in sight. The Aquarians had taken over.
0: Right. He doesn't even explain what Aquarians mean, because his audience, right-wingers in the 70s, knew that that was a byword for hippies, you know?
1: Yeah, it's also funny, because, like, Georgetown, I mean, like I said, Georgetown is the place where Kissinger and, like, Katherine Graham hung out. Georgetown is a place where people like him weren't allowed to hang out. So, trying to paint it as, like, this Bay Area, like, place of debauchery in Georgetown, like... Come on.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, speaking of the debauchery, uh, the plot really gets going once he takes his girlfriend, who is engaged to another man but loves him because he's so cool, to a jazz club where there is this mysterious new singer adored by the counterculture crowd, a young black woman named André Lescaut. Uh, What I think is hilarious is that he mentions that she sings in French and African and uh, this whole first encounter with the singer, really her main appearance in the, in the book, uh, I think is, is just rich with unbelievable levels of racism
2: and also unbelievable references of horniness. Could you please, Sam? the spotlight lengthened along the slim body of the singer the gold chain with its pendant marked her hip line and her hip legs seemed extraordinarily long adding to the serpentine effect of her writhing body chords in her neck stood out her mouth opened wide as her voice soared in a bird-like cry and resonant crash of unseen drums ended her song For a long moment, silence gripped the room, as though the listeners were stunned by the final burst of sound. Then people rose, applauding wildly, shouting her name, shouting Encore, Encore! And and when I rose, I watched the woman in gold, and saw the trace of contemptuous smile. Her presence, her bearing were proud, even haughty, no, regal was a better word. She reigned over the room, over the mortals who paid to see and hear her. And I sense that she despised them all.
0: Right. I also thought it was kind of funny that E. Howard Hunt describes this character as having cafe au lait skin. And I think it's funny how like so many, you know, horny white writers when describing black women characters, they can't avoid food metaphors. If it's not some kind of coffee, it's like, you know, some kind of
1: chocolate. I guess that's also another thing that's also a little anachronistic. Is, you know, he describes her as she sort of sounds like a belly dancer or like, you know, dressed that way, right? Even though she is a singer. And that's like a sort of thing that was, yeah, a 50s pulp icon. I'm not even sure if that's what he's describing, it just comes off that way. Like, it could be describing like a contemporary kind of style, but still describing in a way that it sounds anachronistic.
0: Right, right, okay, yeah, because, again, and, like, jazz clubs were not any kind of countercultural center of the 70s. These kids would have been listening to, if, if they were black, they would have been listening to soul and funk, and white radical kids probably would have been listening to, like, you know, psychedelia and early metal. This was not, like, they weren't listening to lounge singers. And he also, in addition to emphasizing, you know, her skin tone and the the curves of her dress, he also describes how uh, her performance was so magical that it actually was magical. If uh, you could explain, Sam.
2: I gazed at the flame of our candle, saw it moving slowly to vertical, and then through the loudspeakers came a low, tense, primal beat. Above the center of the dark bandstand, I saw something, an awareness of light rather than of light itself. Gradually, it materialized into a rough circle, about a yard in diameter, but with the depth and substance of a globe. Within its circumference there seemed to be a slow falling shower of golden particles. Much like the synthetic snowfalls inside hollow glass souvenirs when stirred or inverted, those had limitations, but gold rain seemed endless." And again, this is kinda weird because mostly he's known for writing like very realistic thriller fiction, but this book seems to take place in a universe where magic is actually real. Right, right. It was funny, the magic set was only going to get
0: really more crazy uh, out of here. Uh, but, but yeah, and so, we we'll, to so we'll be, be the next part, you know, which could this, which, which remember, like, this is a world where magic exists, essentially.
2: The singer sang, and it seemed as though her ode was to darkness, telling of time before man was even shaped to tread the earth. I felt the heat and the slime. Fear drenched my face with sweat. It was far more than the mood evoked by the singer though I could see those things, seeing myself naked and befouled, struggling through a labyrinth of primeval vines that tore and clung at my bleeding flesh. God, how did, how was this published? (laughs) Well, it just, yeah, I know it's, it's so unbelievably indulgent and also, you know,
0: all the references to music by a black performer being primeval and primitive that keeps coming back primeval, primordial. I wonder why that is. <laughs> yeah, well, in any case, shortly after the main character, who is totally not E. Howard Hunt, totally a different person, the main character, John Galtz, remind, remind you, he finds out that this singer, Andre Lascaux, has been murdered. They initially think that it's a robbery, uh, maybe even fueled by acid, which was the big scary drug in 72. But eventually, they blame the killing on a Older African-American dancer named Shinbone Gates, who had performed in Hollywood musicals back in the 30s, but then had fallen on hard times. And as as the uh, coroners are taking the body away, the author, E. Howard Hunt, can't help but include this one little right-wing gripe.
1: One flicked away a butt, then shoved the stretcher inside and closed the rear door. Both got up in front, and the siren began to growl. The ambulance slurched out of the alley, gaining speed and volume. For God's sake... Sunday afternoon, the gal's dead, and they got to race back to the morgue for what? He replies, union rule.
2: I don't understand what the complaint is here, that they're getting the body to a morgue in a timely manner after it had been lying outside uh, all night, presumably.
0: No, I know, yeah, it's, it's, you have to have a little, like, you know, union diss in there. And I can't even tell, yeah, I can't even tell what he's really upset about here. It's just that, what, like, are they too fast,
1: too slow? I don't know don't have time to just like sit around and bask at this murdered woman's body. They got to get back onto work.
2: And wouldn't you believe it? There's plenty of basking at this dead black woman's body throughout the novel. Oh yes. Yeah. Definitely
0: very odd, a very unusual use of the corpse as a storytelling object, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Like you mentioned that character Shinbone is blamed for the killing and there's another little right wing uh, gripe slipping in when E. Howard Hunt makes sure to mention that, simply because Shinbone is black, uh, half of the audience wants to think that he has to be innocent. Uh, By Tuesday, the press was evenly divided on the case. Half of them took the sociological slant. Shinbone's tragedy was the result of race depression, while the other half slavered over the case's lustful implications. But they were united on Shinbone's guilt. I think it's kind of interesting because this idea that... um, Oh, like, the libs, they're they are so sympathetic to black offenders. That's such a common right-wing racist trope today, all over mainstream discourse, all over the internet.
1: We've talked about this before in the 70s. They didn't even want to, like, give the cues any rights at all. Like, even yeah, Of course,
0: you know, in our episode on Dirty Harry, for instance.
1: Yeah, and uh, obviously the complaint was like, oh, liberals are too obsessed with, like, the sociological or socioeconomic causes of crime. They're not, like, hard on crime, like, you know, Nixon is and shit like that.
2: Yeah, yeah. There's a a bunch of great moments. At one point, uh, Galt is talking to a cop, and the cop is just like, "Oh, I'm so glad that that a lawyer's here because that way, when I'm accused of police brutality in court, I'll have someone to back me up."
0: Yeah, no, yeah. Uh, and another kind of funny moment is that with the whole trial is that um, uh, at one point uh, there's this little exchange here where uh, someone asks John Galt. Do you think Shinbone is safer in jail than on the streets of Washington? And then, you know, John Galt smirkingly replies, isn't everyone? Yeah, the the cities are out of control, that that classic 70s thing.
2: Yeah, but in the case of Shinbone, he actually, like, lives in a dilapidated shack. From the point of view of John Galt, this is an act of mercy to keep him in jail. Right. That's true, yeah.
0: And then um, that also, that's interesting, because as soon as he eventually gets acquitted and is
2: released, what happens? He gets poisoned just as John Galt gets to his body and he's able to have one final dramatic message.
0: Right, right, right. And I think that this is kind of the the, the poisoning of this like one person who's involved kind of reminds me of Oswald and that whole you know thing. But also, yeah, this it's uh, it, it leads us into this suddenly much more occult story. And so across the middle portion of the book, John Galt, he investigates. André Lascalt, the singer, as well as this sort of spiritual community that she was part of involving a woman named Madame Zilka, who's this like voodoo
1: queen who uh, has this growing national movement. So this movie starts out like a 50s pulp novel, then devolves into John Gold, Vampire Hunter.
0: Uh, yes, absolutely. So, yeah, absolutely. And uh, a really important development here is that he finds out that some of these, you know, countercultural fans of Andre Lescaux who might be involved in some occultism themselves, are also some people very high up in Washington. They are classic Franklins.
2: Yeah. So John Galt, he gets involved in the investigation because he was Shinbone's lawyer, but now he has to, you know, get to the bottom of the actual case and find out who really did it to get his client off the hook. So he does a little snooping around and he finds out that the only, that the reason why Amandre um, Lascaux was performing at the bar that night was because she had been recommended by the, the office of, of a prominent Pennsylvania senator, Newbold Vane. Now that's a great name. You just don't come across guys named Newbold anymore.
0: Oh, they say, yeah. And Newbold is pictured as like a classic lib elite, you know, a uh, lib sicko, you could say. He's reminiscent of the Kennedys or of Alger Hiss.
2: Um, at one point, a character says, quote, I figured she was young and black, and so Vain was helping out, advancing her career to, so to speak. He is a young man himself, with a big appeal to the young and disadvantaged.
0: Right, a little kind of smuggled in anti-affirmative action line.
2: As the events uh, develop, we find out that this Senator Vane, who's really handsome and has these presidential um, aspirations, uh, had a good reason for placing uh, Lascaux there. But in the meantime, we're learning who Lascaux actually is. John Galt, he's, he's out in the ballot, he's talking to people, making these connections, and he's learning that Andre Lascaux is actually an American woman named Claire Morand. Who came from a small town in Louisiana who had gone to college got a little radicalized because it's the 60s man and uh, and lo and behold she went off to Africa to study witchcraft as one does right and yeah the, the exchange here
0: with the journalist where it goes guess what Claire Andre was studying in Abidjan folklore Swahili witchcraft black magic and then John Galt says here I thought Africa black magic Witchcraft, Louisiana Gregory, the pre-Christian cross, Ankh, the life principle, André Clare and her crowd of devotees. I poured some brandy and got to bed. I dreamed of Catherine Vane, the senator's wife, in an Afro wig, opening a vein in my neck and sucking me bloodless, while juju drums pounded in another part of the jungle.
2: Um, I really appreciate uh, the Swahili reference because um, I John is in Ivory Coast and Swahili is spoken in East Africa.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah. Thousands of miles away. No, of course. Yeah, yeah. You know, you think a guy who is so well-traveled will learn at least a little bit about the world, but clearly not. Um, we mentioned Kathy Vane. That's the senator's wife here. She is one of the worst written characters in the book because as Galt investigates this high-powered Washington couple, he discovers... Turns out they're also notorious DC swingers.
2: Yeah, so they're both uh, sleeping around. They're only in a marriage out of convenience for appearances sake. But uh, as Galt is investigating this mystery, he uh, shags up with uh, Kathy after after she finds out that he's been snooping around the case. She's the archetypical uh, liberated woman of the 60s sleeping around. Uh, and so, uh, they get to, uh, adult stuff. Mm,
0: yes, yeah, because what what happened, yeah, so first off, the the description is is awful, where, uh, E. Howard Hunt says that Catherine, stretching back her arms, resembled Athena in full light, and just as brawless. And then, perhaps unsurprisingly, John Galt, our sexy hero, seduces the senator's swinging wife.
2: You've got the wrong idea, I told her. I made up my mind long ago. Trying to kiss girls is grade school stuff. I believe in the real thing. Are you going to resist?
1: It's turning into a chunk tingle book.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. And uh, it would become just about as ludicrous because it turns out that not only were these swingers swinging with André Lascaux, they were part of her cult. And that uh, it turns out that this cult was started by André Lascaux's own mother, who was that Madame Zilka. They were actually related by blood. This cult that the two mother and daughter run blends, you know, classical horror movie Satanism with African indigenous religion, which is, again, a classic racist trope going back at least as far as the Haitian Revolution. This idea that the religious beliefs of black people are devilish and demonic. And, you know, because this is all the same kind of thing to him, he even brings in elements of Greek and Roman paganism and even the Egyptian oc just all incongruously lumped together.
2: Yeah, like I don't really understand what the deal with the Ankh is exactly, because for some reason it's like the symbol of this cult, and they get a whole exposition about how it's the symbol of life and rebirth. I think the reason is that he saw a hippie or some black kid with an
0: Ankh necklace in like 1970 and figured it had to be satanic. I think that's it. And so, so tell Abram, uh, what exactly is the kind of satanic rituals that these satanic sickos partake in?
1: They mostly do like Chuck Tingle shit, just like orgies, like BDSM, a little bit of satanism, you know, just to make it a little more comical and absurd. Surprisingly, no communism so far.
0: <laughs> that's true, actually. Yeah, that, that that is an interesting point.
1: And so the man knows his limits. So you can't like throw too many elements into the story.
0: <laughs> uh-huh. The the book reaches its climax When Jean Galt actually sneaks into One of these ceremonies himself And it's held at the Vane family mansion And uh, it turns out That at this occult secret Orgy ceremony The guest of honor is no other Than the preserved corpse Of the murdered singer André Lascaux.
1: Yeah and uh, speaking of reaching a climax Let's get into it <laughs> At the far end, Cedar on was the heavy figure of black woman. From shoulders to feet, she was covered with cloth of African design. On her head, she wore a tall African mask that was both grotesque and obscene, painted and streaked in yellow, red, and ochre. The teeth were those of a large carnivore, twin canines curling down and below the end of the jaw-like tusks. Her left hand gripped, a foot-high ankh, and the other a sort of jointed flail. As the music rose to a peak of sound, The flail lifted and slashed downward. On her knees, a woman turned and approached the throne. The flail cut across her breasts. Without a quiver, the woman went back to her place in the circle as a man approached the dais and received a harsh lash on his naked chest. Then the next woman, followed by a man, alternating sexes until a dozen had paid obeisance to the flagellant in the mask, and the circle was again intact. The eyes of the celebrants fixed on the coffin and its corpse.
0: Right, yeah. So yeah, it's like, yeah, it's some weird BTSM shit while there's this like naked dead body of this singer just poised, opposed right in the middle of it. It's, yeah. This, this idea of like this predominantly white crowd attending this African ceremony, I think it also, it, it shows this right-wing attitude that liberals are secretly some kind of black supremacist, that all they really care about is being whipped by a black person. That's, that he's really showing his last year. This is what E. Howard Hunt thinks about left-wingers. He thinks that anti-racism is some kind of masochistic show and that that's the only reason any white Democrats exist.
1: I think uh, Jordan Peele might have read this book at some point.
0: <laughs> well, after this, uh, after this goes on, you know, to, in, in a classic voodoo ceremony fashion, they have the obligatory chicken sacrifice. And this time it's done by Kathy, the senator's swinging wife. And because it's written by E. Howard Hunt, she can't just kill a chicken. She has to kill a chicken while naked and letting its blood slither down her body.
2: Please, Russian Sam. Legs spread, Catherine Vane leaned backwards, drawing the pullet above her breast where the blood fell and flowed in a single rivulet bisecting her naked body. The bound wings strained a final time and went limp. Catherine's fingers dipped into the throat and drew a bloody line across her pelvis then tossing the dead pullet under the bier and stood with arms lifted and outstretched, displaying the inverted cross painted against her flesh. I'm just constantly amazed by how bad the prose is. Like, like, you know what? I should start reading shitty literature more often just because, like, I try not to indulge this kind of stuff, but you really need to read it from time to time to get some perspective on what good writing is because, good lord. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Well, and, and, so, and after this scene,
0: after the, uh, this chicken sacrifice, uh, this is where the book really takes a left turn. And so there's hints of this before, but this is where the book really becomes exceptionally magical. Because uh, without any explanation, after this ceremony happens, the body of the murdered singer essentially comes back to life her body starts moving and then her voice is magically mysteriously heard by all. And then in this kind of sudden, quite literal deus ex machina, the voice of André Lescaut tells the gathered cult members that one of their, their own cult had ordered her killed, that somebody among them had coveted her authority. And then the dead arm of Andre Lesko points at the naked, blood-soaked Kathy, the senator's wife.
2: Yeah. So, uh, as one does, she she runs out when she's accused. But uh, there's a Doberman outside that's ready to pounce and kill her. Right. So yeah. So just yeah. Just as uh, how neatly this this plot was
0: resolved with you know the dead body explaining who kills her, then you have the villain of this book being. Quickly
2: eaten by dog. It's great writing, you know.
0: Right, it, yeah. And, and the book basically just kind of ends there. Uh, it's then uh, he get the, John Galt gets out without having really done anything to save the day. He leaves this cult house. And then uh, there's this really obnoxious monologue at the end. Where he's back at the jazz club where all the cool jazz guys say how much they love him. And he has this little monologue, uh, Abram, if you want to close us off with the, the last pages of this lovely novel by you, Howard Hunt.
1: Forget it, John. It's Georgetown. <laughs> no, that's not how it ends. So it actually ends with, a spotlight went on, and the band began Memphis Blues. Very solid and authentic jazz with roots reaching far away to Africa. I thought of Madame Zika and her green baize table, the garish mask, and her two stuffed animals. Perhaps a bronze crematory urn had been placed there beside them. She would stay on there alone in the old house, alone except for her relics, until it was bulldozed down, leveled like the rest of the block, and then she would go somewhere on welfare. I didn't think social security would willingly send monthly checks to an elderly witch, even if she was not practicing and retired, but I would be glad to take her case.
0: Right, so yeah, so how does this book end with a little little crack about uh, a black woman on welfare? And again, it's like, I think that this, this book just, it's interesting because it's, it, number one, it's just such a window into the reactionary world of the 70s, which we're in a lot of ways still living in today, in, you know, the, the world that these people created. But I think it's also interesting because this wasn't just like some guy, this was somebody with an incredible amount of power, whose worldview, I think, uh, clearly informs the actions that he would take, both in the CIA and then later in the Nixon admin.
1: Yeah, he was a person in a position to impose his worldview onto others, you know, in a way that, like, basically no other writer could.
0: Right, right. And that's what I mean. Yeah, there's so much discussion about, like, you know, if art can be harmful. And I don't think this book was necessarily harmful on its own because it had very little impact. But this is an interesting case because it's like... This book is essentially a, a statement of intent for the kind of stuff that he and many other powerful right-wingers in the 70s were trying to do to hurt the kinds of people he was demonizing in this text.
2: Like, to be fair, like, like we've been ragging on him all episode, but I will say I expected it to be much more racist. <laughs> Cannibals running around and putting white people in cauldrons while, like, dancing around.
0: He goes. He goes pretty far. Uh, honestly i i think it's i think it's not too far off from that it's just he just has this kind of like occultist vein over it there, there of course there is some kind of strange uh cannibal reference here and there but it's it's only uh it's metaphorical really
2: yeah, but the occult stuff—it, I found it really fascinating, really because it seems like very much in the vein of vein of proto-Q stuff. This was before the Satanic Panic, and yet, like, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's these
0: Satanic elites, these liberal elites doing these yeah, Satanic sacrifices. Totally.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's not that extreme. It's not like Indiana Jones Temple of Doom, right? Where they're like, you know, eating snakes and like cracking open like a, a monkey's skull and you know, like that kind of over the top stuff.
0: Yeah. That's more racist, yeah.
1: You know, I would have expected something a little closer to that. But, you know, it is... Sort of grounded. It's not like going insane with the magic stuff.
2: Yeah, but not to give uh, Hunt too much credit here. At one point, he describes a character as, quote, large and black. He was naked except for a loincloth.
0: And then, of course, the whole, like, yeah, cafe au lait skin for the protagonist. Or the for the, the singer who dies at the beginning. I, 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 I think I'm pretty confident calling this a, a quite racist novel, even if it, by the standard of its time, could have been worse. I'm scared to look at his other work. <laughs> Right. Well, I think that beyond the prose, what I think is so bad about this one, is just like how indulgent it is, how he's just imagining the protagonist as just like the, co- the coolest kind of like, you know, middle aged white guy who he totally clearly thought he was. It's just so interesting to see like what what this says about him, you know, how he saw himself, because clearly he thought he was John Galt.
2: Well, well, it's funny you should say that, William, because uh his uh, children seem to recall him in a very similar light. Yeah, one quote that I found from his son, St. John Hunter. Uh that's his name, by the way, St. John. St. John in an in an interview for Rolling Stone said, "quote He was not faithful to my mom, but she stayed with him. He was a swinger. He thought of himself as a cool dude, suave, sophisticated, intellectual. He was Mr. Smooth, a man of danger. He was perfect for the CIA. He never felt guilty about anything. Right. He would even be uh, much more critical of his father, kind of almost surprisingly so. He also in the same interview said, quote, He was a complete self-centered wasp who saw himself as the blue blood from upstate New York. I'm better than, than than anybody because I'm white, Protestant, and went to brown. And since I'm in the CIA, I can do whatever I want. Jew, N-word, Polek, WAP. He used all of these racial epithets. He wasn't elitist. He hated everybody. Very old school uh, WASP attitude. Like, not even Italians are safe. Yeah, the, the, the Poleks, too. Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, Abram, can you read this quote we have by Ambassador Sam Hart, which I think is kind of funny, who was ambassador in Uruguay uh, when... E. Howard Hunt was the station chief there
1: for the CIA. Everett Howard Hunt Jr. was a unique character, said Ambassador Sam Hart, who met him when Hunt was chief of station in Uruguay in the late 1950s. He described him as totally self absorbed, totally immoral, and endangered himself and anybody around him. As far as I could tell, Howard went from one disaster to another, rising higher and higher, everything floating just right behind him.
0: Really, E. Howard Hunt did not have a good reputation with anybody, but for whatever reason, he just stayed in these positions of power. Even in the CIA, he had a lot of people who were really critical of his activities. If you
2: want to read some of these quotes, Sam. One that I felt really gave a good sense of who he was at the CIA was, quote, what we wanted to do was have a terror campaign. To terrify Arbenz particularly, to terrify his troops, much as the German Stuka fighters terrified the population of Holland, Belgium, and Poland at the outset of World War II. Directly comparing his own activities to what the Nazis were doing, and somehow he managed to maintain the illusion that he was the good guy, but... It, it didn't work out for him well at all really by the end of his life he was sick as a dog he couldn't rewrite his memoir because as i mentioned previously he was sick he had everything he had pneumonia he had cancer one of his feet got amputated he just kept having strokes and yeah it sounds like he got what he deserved ultimately
0: right yeah i think it's interesting that eventually uh, i think eventually his luck with his former colleagues did run out because uh part of the inve- the, the testimony that would get him arrested in watergate was actually from other CIA members, including the CIA director, Richard Helms, as well as there's another CIA man uh, named Jim McCord, who confirmed that he had been involved in Watergate stuff, as well as that phone bug we mentioned right at the top, that the, the Nixon's uh, tape record- voice-activated tape recorders.
1: One last thing about Nixon is, you know, we mentioned he's, like, afraid of confrontation. You know, once Kennedy learns of a, the Bay of Pigs, you know, he, like, he knows to stop it right away. Before this gets out of hand. And uh, Nixon, not so much. So like he learns of the the Watergate thing immediately. It isn't like something he learns like months later. No, he learns about immediately, like the next day. And he just doesn't have it to like get all these people in a room and like fire them or like do something about it. So he just sort of like procrastinates and just hopes it's all going to go away. And then, of course, things get worse and worse over the coming months. And then eventually when he does put them all in a room together uh you know it doesn't amount to anything it's like hunt was very lucky in that regard is that he just for whatever reason he just kept coasting by right yeah
0: and that's just it's it's amazing how long he could coast by for and you know and i, I kind of wonder like do you think that the fact that so many guys like this were able to hang on for so long is that part of why the american system appears to now have dwindling prospects basically any way you look at it or am i confusing cause and effect here and is, uh, is it that the American system was so strong that these guys could get away with these kinds of constant fuck ups? What do you guys think?
1: I, I don't know anybody that's like been fired from a three letter agency. You know what I mean? It was like once you're basically in it, you're like in it.
0: And you get true even today. You think that's true?
1: Yeah. Like instead of being fired, you had like the shitty desk job and like you can either work. You know this mind-numbing job for the rest of your life where you can just like leave and try get a job in the private sector like unless you do something actually illegal and it gets in uh you go to court like you're staying on the payroll forever
2: well well clearly the agency isn't fan of these guys anymore now they're much they're angling much more for the neurodivergent hispanic woman with havana syndrome and ibs as well as a generalized anxiety disorder well, well I think that we'll
0: take a step back there I, I think I think that what uh, what if if he was looking at this situation if e Howard Hunt himself was looking at this, I think what he would say was that any supposed left- wing signaling among the CIA today is just because they're going after the Franklin crowd It's that they're changing their cultural signaling to attract the you know to to appeal to today's elite crowd of Ivy League grads who might have different cultural affectations.
2: I think you would just call them crypto commies.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, and I think on that note, uh, uh, and this, is, this is an interesting one, this is a fun one. Any closing thoughts you guys have on uh, E. Howard Hunt or his
1: novel, The Coven? You know how people um, always get mad at like the garbage books that are being sold these days? The shitty YA literature, that's always like a topic of contention. This is the kind of stuff that men were reading back before they, you know, gave up reading and started watching TV exclusively. People like think of it as like, oh, people reading like fucking Tolstoy back in the '60s. People are reading garbage like this. This guy sold like what 150,000 copies of his shitty books. There's never been a time where uh, Americans appreciated high literature.
0: Right. Yeah. So I guess yeah. So I guess it's you. It's easy to to to, bemoan the death of American literacy. But if this was what the average guy was reading back then,
1: yeah, maybe prestige TVs actually step up for them.
0: Maybe so. Well, thank you so much for joining me for this one, guys. Uh, This is a fun one. Uh, This is Gladiator for Europe signing off.